don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 57. And today we are talking about uh, Sorry to Bother You from 2018, directed by Boots Riley, uh, who I, I knew more, well, everybody knew more before this, I guess, for being the uh, mastermind behind The Coup, the musical group. I, I read that very recently, but I had never heard of Boots Riley until this movie came out. I actually saw The Coup perform once um, in, in Lexington, Kentucky, because uh, the college station WRFL uh, had a, a music festival for like a couple of years, I think. And one year they had it on top of a parking garage downtown and the coup performed. And I remember thinking like, oh, this is, they're pretty cool. And I just remember Boots Riley talking about his, his drummer didn't show up that day. So they had to get some random guy that like worked for the radio station who knew how to play drums. <laughs> So in between each song, he would have to like go to the guy and be like, here's the kind of beat I'm looking for. And the guy would like start to play something and he would either be like, oh yeah, and give him the thumbs up or he'd be like, oh, change this a little bit. Wow. Um, and one of the, the beats, he just like, I think he just went to the guy and was like, play the beat from So Fresh and So Clean <laughs> and then just did the song o- over that. I think um, being on stage as a musician and not knowing the songs is literally a nightmare I've had. It's man. When I was in that, the, the small time band, there were a couple of shows where our drummer couldn't make it for whatever reason. And we had two different friends of ours fill in and neither one of them really knew the song. One of them knew the songs more than the other one did. But even then the fuck ups were, were like plentiful and we'd have to like try to like give them a signal of when to, switch things up and stuff and but with one of them we just kind of let him do whatever and we're like you kind of know what the tempo is just play whatever and we'll figure it out which was kind of interesting and then after that we just had our lead singer who was a better drummer than guitar player uh play drums and sing but then he would like almost have a fucking asthma attack yeah that's that's a a physical feat yeah so that was um anyway that doesn't matter (laughs) sorry to to bother you Uh, this is a movie that i'd heard about a lot but had never got around to watching. Yeah, we had a, a mutual viewing last night, uh, yeah. both our, our first times. And I I had sort of heard of this movie and had, had heard Boots Riley on the sort of press circuit talking about it, and I knew it was going to be kind of weird. You know, people were like, kept using words like creative and imaginative, and that it certainly was. It just sort of kept getting weirder and weirder and like i was saying i was reading a review by a.o scott in the new york times and um was happy to hear him mention uh charlie kaufman as a sort of background influence for this because it does have that feel of absurdity i mean it's satirical uh but it's i mean it's 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 not divorced from the real world because it's commentary on the real world but it has this very sort of playful absurdity to its logic and and that is uh i i just really like that 
Yeah, you said he, A.O. Scott said it was like Kendrick Lamar and Charlie Kaufman. He said it's like a puppet show put on by Kendrick Lamar and Charlie Kaufman. (laughs) Yeah, which is pretty accurate, I would think. It does have that kind of Kaufman-esque sort of absurdity that that is throughout the whole film, but really gets sort of ratcheted up kind of toward the end of it. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's what I, 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 I like is that he sort of keeps pushing at each like with each act you think you've reached the pinnacle of the film's absurdity and you can see sort of how the rest of the movie would go if it just accepted that as its absurd premise but it just keeps uh pushing the level of absurdity like it starts off it's like oh this is sort of an office space kind of uh work sucks stick it to the man sort of thing but then it, it it just keeps getting wilder and wilder. He he becomes the power caller and you realize, oh, like this is not even trying to be an actual representation of, of work life uh in 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 a sort of realist sense. Um it's not trying to do that at all. It's trying to depict another level of employment which which is another level the film says of exploitation it's like oh you're being a dick as a telemarketer you're being like morally reprehensible as a salesman at at the higher level and then when he finally reaches you know the the steve lift level uh he's just like a monster Uh, yeah like almost literally a monster um or creating literal monsters. So climbing the climbing the corporate ladder is essentially uh, different, uh, increasing degrees of selling your soul. Yeah, and making you implicit within a system that you know that you should be against, but is sort of in the case of, of Cassius uh, Cassius Green, which I. I didn't. I was telling you, I didn't realize his name was a pun until like two thirds of the way through the movie. Yeah, I was like, "Oh, I, Cash is and green." I didn't catch it till you said it. Yeah, Cash um, is green. But you know, he Cash is the. What makes him such an interesting character is that he knows what he's doing is on its face just wrong, but because he feels like he's accomplishing something and he's being compensated very handsomely, he's able to sort of have that that cognitive dissonance of. Oh well, it's it's okay. Like what I'm doing is different from what they're doing downstairs, that sort of thing. And he's Cash is a sort of an everyman in, in a good way because you don't really get a whole lot of insight into his inner moral system. Like you, you just sort of see his reaction to things, and and he's the everyman because he has these decisions that <clears throat> that you know everyone faces. I think A.O. Scott puts it really well. Let me see if I can find it. He says, The movie's imaginary world forces Cassius to make choices that seem unfair, if not impossible, between political commitment and personal ambition, between love and power, between staying true to his friends and becoming a sellout, which makes it a lot like the real world. So, like, yes, it is this absurd, sort of exaggerated satire, but... That's what a satire, a satire does that sort of a, uses that absurdity to, to uh, make you think about your your choices, your, yeah. your world. 
in the the satire is such where you think of satire as being like this you know <clears throat> exaggerated kind of overblown representation of things in the real world but it's like them taken to the next level whereas in in this most of the stuff is really not that far exaggerated from the real world it's just sort of made blunter and i'm thinking specifically of the tv show that everybody loves which is i got the shit kicked out of me oh, yeah. which is just like people getting beat up on camera yeah. and that's really not that far from things that actually exist it just hit me it's very similar to idiocracy mike judges idiocracy where they watch the show called owl my balls <laughs> yeah <laughs> and in the real world at least for as far as like that entertainment is concerned, it's really not that different. You have shit like America's Funniest Home Videos, yeah, or like <laughs> Wipeout, yeah, weird, and like or just reality TV in general. Yeah, and even like I don't know, like uh, all these weird dating relationship shows. Like I forget what it what it's called. Too Hot to Handle, I believe, is the one of the new Netflix ones from that's been out for you know, a month or so now, I think, and. The premise is you're, it's all these young, hot people, but you're not allowed to have any sort of like sexual contact with each other. And if you do, you like get a demerit or whatever. And it's supposed to be like who can control themselves the best, which is such like a weird. Yeah. Uh, know, and that's strange. a real show. And I, I was asking you the other day uh, if you'd seen that uh, satirical reality show. <coughs> excuse me that the onion used to produce called sex house which is you know like i said a satire on that sort of thing but yeah i, I like that uh, uh riley sort of has a um an exaggerated absurd sort of analog to everything like he doesn't use real brand names at all it's like soda cola stuff like that and he does that yeah he does that so that you will ask yourself wait in real life what is this because because (laughs) if you just have coke or whatever it is you it's it's so common and naturalized you're like oh it's a coke um but you don't even think oh it's a coke you just you just don't even see it because it's so common but if he has something where he draws your attention to the fact that this is a fictionalized version of that, you have to ask yourself, wait, what is this in real life? Oh, it's a Coke. Or, oh, it's too hot to handle. Or, oh, it's you know some shitty reality show that actually exists. And so by not you know getting copyrights or, or whatever you have to get um, to make your movie seem realistic um, you're actually maybe doing a better job of making people think about the real world yeah removing all the sort of rigmarole which is a word i haven't used ever <laughs> and, and making you look at like the strip down, like you're saying the strip down sort of essence of some, or like capitalist essence of something that's why i really like the uh have a cola and smile bitch thing that's throughout where <laughs> yeah. the, the girl hits Cassius in the head with the, the can of soda. And then which goes viral. Yeah. It goes <laughs> viral. And then that same girl who you thought was like some leader within the resistance signs some like huge deal with the soda company. And then later mm-hmm. on you see the commercial where she's like hitting 
like a stand-in for Cassius in the head with a can, mm-hmm. and then she walks up and starts making out with him, and it has it's sort of like shades of the the uh, was it Kylie Jenner like Pepsi commercial where she gives the, the Pepsi to the cop, yeah, and solves racism, yeah, and yeah. also like the fact that there's an interracial kiss is like that's progressive just right. because they say it is that kind of thing. But um, then they start selling. Then there's like merchandising of the products associated with the viral video where it's like Cassius's wig. wig and yeah Cassius's hair which is like pretty distinctively like african-american hair and then all these little white kids wearing it and yeah. like yeah. marching around town um just you know commodifying an act of resistance which the movie deals with that a lot but that's like one of the most uh on the face ones where it's like they've obviously taken this thing that was meant to be this act of resistance and now it's literally a capitalist money machine just printing out right and, and maybe another obvious example of that is steve lift played by army hammer is recruiting cassius to be a sort of leader of this new race of equa sapiens that he's produced and, and you see that the the powers that be are so aware of the dynamics of resistance and revolution that they from the get-go are uh implementing uh, sort of counter counter revolution uh tactics even before anything's begun so yeah. where like the the revolutionary leader is actually an employee of you know of the corporation and you get uh sort of i don't know this for certain because i don't i don't know all the ins and outs of boots riley's personal politics but what seemed to be a shot at nonviolent resistance when army hammer is talking to cassius and he's like you could be we're looking for the martin luther king jr of the equisapiens yeah i thought that was really uh, interesting so you know assuming that he would infiltrate and then teach them that like nonviolent resistance is how we'll make a change then you know after five years or whatever it was they said they'd give him the reversal shit or whatever and make him human again yeah and and just to to go off that um and harken back to last week's uh discussion of do the right thing apparently boots riley and spike lee had a little bit of beef uh because boots riley published an article or an opinion on uh Black Klansman, Spike Lee's film, that basically said it, it seemed like a a product in an ad campaign for the police, Black Klansman, that is. And I, having just recently seen that movie, I can sort of see where he would say that. Um, and, he, and he points out to the, to the changes in the true story, uh, Ronald Stallworth's true story, uh, that kind of softens Stallworth's uh, position in the police force and and the movie sort of uh, doesn't really glamorize the police but it doesn't go out of its way to problematize kind of like like the captain and things like that um, and he also said I don't know if this is true or not Boots Riley said that Spike Lee was paid like $200,000 by the NYPD as part of some campaign to uh, encourage more positive relations between minorities and the police uh, and Boots Riley saying like this movie 
feels like an extension of that campaign. Uh, and like you said, there's nothing ambiguous about Boots Riley's position. Like, like we know who the bad guys are. And something I really appreciate about Sorry to Bother You is, is how big and wide the scope is. It's not like, um, it's not just about like interpersonal racism, you know, a, a white guy is racist against a black guy and, and he's got to overcome, you know, it's not like, like remember the Titans, you know, it's like, oh, can this football team uh, achieve unity? It's like, we have to fight uh, systemic oppression, which uh, probably my favorite part of the movie is that that systemic oppression is shown to be felt in the very uh, seemingly innocuous and, and trite uh, job that Cassius gets as a telemarketer. It's like, no, this is emblematic. This Even this uh, monotonous experience is part of the oppression. Um, and, and you're sort of uh, led along this path with very, with with little treats like oh become become a power caller uh, yeah so it's 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 scope the movie scope is very wide and very uh, uh all-encompassing of of a sort of capitalist exploitation uh part part of which is is racism um yeah and, and like you said, it, it kind of, it, it's trying to show how it permeates through, you know, every part of your, your daily life, pretty much. Um, which is why it's interesting to see, like, um, the, the football players, that was like an interesting thing where, and it's not really, they don't harp on it a whole lot, but there's the one scene where they're in the car and Cassius is like, it's like these football players, like all they ever do is play football and like work at the furniture warehouse and they don't seem to like want anything out of life other than to just be playing football. And the guy in the back is like, well, at least, at least they're friends, like that kind of thing. And it's, it's, I don't know, that was kind of a weird, I'm not really sure what Boots Riley is saying exactly, but then at the end, the football players are part of that kind of coalition, which is another cool thing the movie does is the only thing that can start to defeat this evil corporation as a coalition of like the lower classes and the working people coming together, including the Equisapiens, which is maybe some weird shout out to like uh, solidarity among non-human living things, maybe even yeah. though they're like half human. Um, and then also with the football players. So even with people that are currently exist outside of or think they exist outside of this sort of capitalist hellscape and they're just playing football and they don't right. have to worry about it. Right. Uh, bringing them in as well. Um, I don't know. That was kind of, kind of a weird thing, but something else I noticed about that kind of everyday oppression of, you know, capitalism thing is that um, when we get the, the scenes outside of the job, they're usually at the bar and then there's a, you probably remember this, that scene sort of weird. It's when Cassius, after his first day as a power caller, he goes to Detroit's art studio mm -hmm. and she's holding the joint and he's like, 
he can't think straight because he's just staring, staring at, the joint. at the joint. Doesn't care what she says. Yeah. Until he gets the joint, but by then it's like, you know, kind of the moment is lost. Yeah. So it's like the saying of like, I don't think Boots Riley is like condemning drug use or anything like that, but he's condemning its use purely as a means of like escaping your shitty reality. It reminds me of that opening speech in Spike Lee's Malcolm X, uh, where Malcolm X is saying every time you break the seal on that liquor bottle that's a government seal you're breaking <laughs> like like this what we were just talking about this we were talking about uh jason moore's book capitalism and the web of life how the time outside of your shitty job is actually not independent of it mm-hmm. it's like you're just this tool that is being recharged with your netflix and your alcohol and your weed uh, so that you can uh, put up with the shitty job the next day, the way the way a tool has to has to recharge in order to function the next day. Uh, so yeah, that speech in Malcolm X and and the the joint in Sorry to Bother You are I think are calling our attention to the uh, continuum that is what what we what we think is a binary of public and private life or work life and personal life it's actually uh all commodified by the the company you work for it is it's it's part of it and now uh because everyone who is so lucky you know myself included are we're working online and so with that it's even more of like a, a meshing of your you know quote unquote outside of work life with your work life where because of you know, things like email you're kind of always on the clock and you're always expected to sort of be available and you know if you're a teacher like I happen to be you are sort of even more so encouraged to always be inva- always be available because you want to help your students and it's sort of that that weird conflict between I want to be available and always be there to help my students succeed in my class and all that stuff and but not set a precedent for your own exploitation yeah exactly and so you have to try to find some sort of like any kind of middle ground or like way of 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 keeping that balance where you don't go fucking insane because i've known or have known and do know people who in my opinion are making themselves way too available Mm -hmm. and are spending way too much time like holding their student's hand and leading them through the thing whereas i'm more of like to teach you to swim, throw you in and see what happens. And if you're drowning, I'll save you, but otherwise you can do it yourself. Um, but yeah, so that kind of, it's been, and this is not a new thing that's been happening for at least a couple of decades now. Like work life is just sort of work and life. I mean, are becoming more and more, uh, inseparable from one another, but depending on Mm -hmm. your job, it's especially true. But even if you have a job where you don't take anything home, it's somehow like even more depressing because you, as soon as you walk out the door, you feel that timer start on now I can live my life. Yeah. I had the thought, uh, a couple months ago, I remember, uh, given our discussion about like national parks and I sort of relate that to the work week. It's like the, the weekend is a national park where it's like just enough sacred to sanction like the shittiness of, of, of what's, you know, uh, I don't know how to say it, but if you can sort of translate 
time and space they're like here's this sort of personal sacred time we'll say uh, of the weekend but all that is just to uh to recharge you for the weekdays the same way we have these national parks like oh these this is sacred space but we have that sacred space so that we can um degrade the rest of the space Um, (laughs) yeah you know what i'm saying so you have your your uh quote unquote free time so that then you can you don't you don't worry as much about the rest of your time being just like utterly out of your hands and at the whim of a major corporation exactly it's like a it's like a snack you know it's just (laughs) like it's like what uh, what's going to get me through the day um yeah so uh, there's this movie is is uh extremely thoughtful and in engaged intellectually in a way most movies are not i really really like the part where detroit is explaining to cassius that when she kisses him it is not for posterity's sake because (laughs) because he's sort of he's sort of uh wrapped up in these kind of intellectual abstractions about like oh the world is dying the sun is gonna fade you know burn out um and she sort of says, you know, basically calls attention to the fact that he's living in some impossible future in basically abstractions. And she says, when I kiss you, it's not for posterity's sake. Um, it doesn't. He's saying nothing matters because we die. And and everyone who knows us dies. And, and she, basically her argument is that life is not about legacy it's about experience um like an existential argument almost right Um, and and so the the movie just sort of brilliantly finds a way to talk about all that in like a two-minute scene right at the beginning too right at the beginning sets it up of like oh that's the kind of dichotomy between these two characters right and and in a movie that's about so much more than that as well yeah and that's why it's so great it's like boots riley or, you know, anyone who's so inclined could make some movie that's railing against capitalism and using, using all these, like, huge satirical elements and, and, and sort of poking holes in this system. But even beyond that, he's focused on not just how that affects society or how that affects the working class. He's, he's focused on how that affects you as an individual and sort of what your life is like and the quality of your life. And now that I think about it, it seems like that moment comes at the beginning of the film so that he sort of has some sort of philosophical or spiritual even context for his arguments against, you know, the monotony of uh, and exploitation of, of capitalist life to have some legs to stand on. It's like, what's it? He has to, he has to define the stakes. Why does it matter? We've talked about this before. Like, how can you prove that it's bad to exploit a person? And you, you have to, I think that sort of experience, experience-based, uh, like your time matters. Your experience of life is what gives life its meaning to where if, if you have Cassius's initial thought process of life as legacy, you know, that sort of thinking might provoke you into 
a life of sort of capitalist accumulation and conspicuous consumption and like oh i've got to i've got to get as much stuff as i can and i've got to have as many children as i can to to leave this to but that that is that sort of capitalist consumption model the legacy model is that yeah is that but it's like that uh it kind of makes me think of that drake song that we heard uh when i die put my money in the grave (laughs) it's like that idea that you can't take it with you but now it's sort of become the opposite of like even if you can't fuck that like put i want the money in the grave with me right um and, and i don't know just i just really like that aspect of the movie where it's focusing not just on here's how this robs you of of income you should be making and and sort of damns you to this life this like subprime life of Mm -hmm. living in shitty apartments and eating cup of noodles every day and that sort of shit but it's also how it it goes beyond that of the material aspect which is very important but it goes to like a spiritual aspect of yeah of think about how this how this sort of affects you like you for having fucking stress nightmares about your job or whatever yeah and that's why it's always effective to me and this is how part of why like bernie sanders campaign was effective for people that you wouldn't expect it to be effective to because it's just looking at people who think everything is okay or think the sort of prevailing political economic system is is good or is or they're indifferent to it but it's like well it's the only one we've got that sort of stuff and just ask them like well don't you feel shitty and don't you feel shitty like all the time like when you work your ass off for like 10 hours a day and you can barely pay your rent doesn't that feel bad when you go to the doctor for like a minor thing and then you get a bill that it takes you two years to pay off, like, doesn't that suck? And then eventually it starts to pile up and they're like, okay, wait a minute. If all these things feel like, I feel like all these things are conspiring against me to make me feel sick or crazy or to like make me less healthy than I could be, then, you know, maybe there's a problem with the system and it's not just that doctor screwed me or this job sucks. It's like right. all jobs suck. <laughs> right. Right. So here's a, here's a tiny ray of hope. If we want to construe it that way. I remember uh, a couple of years ago, reading an article that showed that millennials are more likely to spend their money on an experience than they are on a, a good you know, product. So they're more likely to take a vacation than they are to buy a car with the same amount of money, you know, uh, which is still within this sort of consumer, you know, y- you could th- take it as a bad sign, like, oh, experience has been commodified completely now. Hmm. But I think there might be a tiny ray of hope in the idea that people are starting to realize that there is more fulfillment in experience than in accumulation of things. Um, or maybe more people are starting to, to think that way. Um, and like I said, you know, going on vacation instead of buying a car is still completely within <clears throat> a consumer model. But maybe it's a first step on a path towards oh my experience of my life as sorry to bother you seems to say through detroit uh my experience of my life is all i have and that is the most important thing because cassius is right that sort of legacy thing is is meaningless 
after after enough time passes, no one knows you were here, um, and it doesn't matter. And so, what the only thing that can matter is the sort of immediacy and the the depth to which you experience your time as a living being. That's the only thing. Um, and so, like I said, maybe that's a tiny, maybe I'm just trying to make it seem optimistic, but I think there's something generally positive about valuing experience over things. Yeah, but then, and this is kind of what you're already saying, like that idea of experience gets tied up with the idea of a thing or like a commodity. It makes me think of like music festivals. Yeah. Uh, like Bonnaroo or Coachella or something where it's like, that's a big experience. And like, I've been to Bonnaroo a couple of times. So like, I, I get it. But at the same time, it's like expensive to go to these things. And it is a commodity. Even if you get like the cheapest tier of tickets, you're still paying like a few hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. And then plus you have to like travel there and everything there is super expensive because everyone price gouges, that sort of stuff. Um, so that that experience can be important to a lot of people, but it's so deeply intertwined with like you know capitalist profit motive interest that it it, it kind of makes you think about it. And then on top of that, it gets commodified and becomes a, a sort of signifier of a certain type of lifestyle or a certain type of you know being in the world where people want to go and like for instance like go to Coachella and wear their like Native American inspired outfit and take instagram photos right and there's been a lot of sadly that this is it's sad that this is happening and i kind of hope that like when people see other people doing this they like smash their phone or like throw water balloons at them or something but you'll see things from the the protests going on right now where people will go and you'll see them like staging a photo real quick to post on instagram so i've seen photos of like uh, it would be like a, a girl like wearing a dress that's like way too nice to wear to a protest who will like be standing with her fist raised in front of someone who's taking her picture for Instagram or like pretending to to like spray graffiti or some shit like that for it, you know, and mm. and sort of <laughs> what would be called like clout chasing of like I was there and I participated. Look at my photo, that sort of stuff. Yeah, it uh, it really reminds me. Everything you're saying reminds me of a one of my favorite cake songs i think is like an underrated song is uh rock and roll lifestyle which is sort of about commodification of rebellion and at the end there's sort of this refrain where he says excess ain't rebellion you're drinking what they're selling Uh, and so uh, your self-destruction doesn't hurt them your chaos won't convert them Um, and so your uh, your sort of by by accepting that definition of rebellion you are actually just participating in in the very thing you think you're not participating in yeah it's like a a line from a rage against the machine song from testify i believe and i, I was thinking about this a lot when everything started and then it was mentioned on a, another podcast i forget i think like chapo trap house or something but the line is a uh, raise your fist and march around. Just don't take what you need. And, and that's such a, like a pithy version of that where it's like you, they'll let you protest and march all you want. As long as you're not 
receiving any of your demands or you're not making any sort of material changes. It's sort of like, you know, when Amitav Ghosh and, and other people talk about the, the mass protests after the invasion of Iraq, it's like up to that point, the, the biggest global demonstration in, in history and it changed nothing still happened. Millions of people still died, that sort of stuff. The same thing after Trump was elected and you had the, uh, um, the marches in the streets with the, the pussy hats and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not to, not to like blanketly condemn all of the people that participated because I think it's important to at least like show that you are not with something or that, you know, that you disagree with something, <clears throat> but ultimately made no changes. And so now we have that paired with other things like capturing and burning down a police station and like a little bit of show of force in with these demonstrations and changes are sort of happening in certain places although like in Louisville Kentucky in my home state where Breonna Taylor was killed for laying in her own bed doing nothing Mm -hmm. uh nothing has happened except they passed you know Breonna's law which is police aren't allowed to execute no-knock warrants anymore which is like that shouldn't have been a thing in the first place. So yeah. like that, not to say that, like, I, I don't want to be like, fuck that because it is like, it's an important, you know, change to be made, but like people who killed her are still free and they're, they've made no sort of sweeping changes. Yeah, you, you have to ask yourself to what degree are these changes, uh, placating, you yeah. know, um, rather than they, they'll sort of substitute, uh, that uh, for real change so that you will continue, you know it's it's almost like and sorry to bother you the promise or or uh, hope for this thing they call being a power caller is what keeps people doing their shitty low level jobs yeah so and, and it's it's the same with like the concept we've talked about of sustainability what what small thing can we change to leave the larger uh, dynamic in place? Uh, so what concessions can we make in this one law to leave the system as it is? Yeah, and, that, and that's part of why like you, probably, you might have seen the, the Democrats came out with their what they claimed are these big progressive police reforms, but it's all like, stupid shit that they've already tried and doesn't work or that won't work anyway, like banning chokeholds nationwide. Well, they were already banned when Eric Garner got choked to death or like, um, besides Sean Hannity was saying how as a martial artist, he, (laughs) he knew it wasn't a, you know, he knows the chokehold and that was no chokehold. Yeah. Or like, you know, national registry of cops who have been sort of accused of brutality or what it's like, yeah, okay. We can have, we had a list of Nazis too, and that didn't really (laughs) stop anything. Um, so yeah, just that, that placating thing in, in, in the movie, uh, what you're saying, I think is, is, is right where it's the idea or the, the brass ring of being a power caller is sort of what cash, what draws Cassius in and sort of blinds him to all these other things. And that happens, you know, probably in your everyday life, there's always that sort of next step of like, if I could just get that, then everything would be going all right. And then you get there and it's like, well, if I could just get that, then everything would be going all right. And, you know, one of the big ones that's been around forever pretty much is, is like the lottery. If I can just win the Powerball mm-hmm. and you'll have people. So like in an office pool, my mom did this once when she was, uh, you know, years ago when she was a teacher 
uh, where a bunch of people in an office or whatever will go in and buy a bunch of tickets and mm-hmm. then plan to split the money however many ways. Yeah. Um, and that's such a, like, it, it's ultimately kind of like, it's sort of harmless, I guess, but it's incredibly depressing to think about of like, we'll win this hundred million dollars and then split it. And you're thinking like, oh, we'll each get two million dollars. And oh, wouldn't that be great? Um, and, you know, it, it almost never works out. Yeah. That's why, like, uh, you know, we talked a lot about The Office and there's a lot of stuff about The Office that I'm, I'm not a fan of. But I really like that the, the warehouse workers win the lottery and they all blow it and have to come back and work at Dunder Mifflin. <laughs> And it's like, that's so perfect because they didn't even like win that. They won, they each won like $200,000 or something like, I forget exactly. But they like blow it investing in like a energy drink for Asian homosexuals and stuff like that. <laughs> and it's just, that that's such a, I think, realistic portrayal of where they think, oh, I'm on top of the world. Fuck this job. And then they, all that money just goes down the drain immediately. Right, right, right. Uh, it, the, the talk of like... Um, the commodification of rebellion is really uh, is really kind of I think what we were getting at earlier when we were saying we're talking about the the emphasis in the movie on the uh, weed you know when he, when Cassius can't stop staring at the weed uh, that's another little uh, dangling carrot you know like you can have. You, you think that these these maybe drugs or whatever are are a form of rebellion but they're actually a form of complacency they're they're sustaining you uh, and sustain and thereby sustaining the system you are a part of um, not, not to switch gears entirely here but I another thing I really liked about the movie is how the sort of love triangle between um, Cassius, Detroit, and... Squeeze. Squeeze uh, is, is kind of... seems consciously secondary. And it's like no big thing ever happens with that. There, you, you expect... In a normal movie, Cassius and Squeeze have this big confrontation because it's implied that Squeeze and Detroit have sort of fooled around... Uh, but then Detroit asks Cassius if he wants to know who she fooled around with, and he says no. And then at the end, when Detroit and Cassius get back together, Squeeze just sort of, you can tell he's disappointed, but like he's got bigger fish to fry. Like he's more invested in this sort of uh, walkout and, and the politics of the office that he is sort of the ringleader of. And that's just really nice to see in a, in a big movie like this where... It's like, yeah, yeah, this 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 is important, but it's ultimately secondary to, uh, you know, huge systemic issues of exploitation. Yeah, and Squeeze is an interesting character kind of in general because he's, it's implied that this is kind of what he does. Like no matter where he's at, he's mm-hmm. like agitating for unionization yeah. and labor rights and stuff like that. Um, so he's very much more kind of dedicated to the, to the cause, whereas with... Cassius it takes it takes him having a few experiences to sort of come to realization of like oh this is something I should be uh, agitating for as well and with Detroit it's kind of it's interesting to think of like I don't know it's a this is kind of a cynical thing but it's like once 
once Cassius kind of becomes a part of the the machine, so to speak, is when she, you know, fools around with Squeeze because he's constant. Like he's right. he's very, you know, he's going to be, you know, organizing, and that's what he does. Yeah. And so that's for her. That's much much more admirable. It's the same thing when she tells Cassius, you know, you were you were much more interesting before you got this job, like that sort of thing. And then once he Cassius sort of comes to his senses, I guess, or, or sort of becomes more conscious of everything, then she feels more comfortable kind of like going back and, and being with him. So it was a little, that, that part was like a little strange, but I, I do appreciate what you're saying of like um, the fact that the love triangle is there, but it ultimately like doesn't matter because all these other things are so big. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's also, it's also maybe a little bit idealistic to portray like the major concern of someone in a relationship is their moral uh is their you know how they perceive their partner morally which is i mean i don't get me wrong i agree that's a huge concern uh and and should be sort of how you look at you know a potential partner but that's not how it is um <laughs> You know, in, in, unfortunately, I think in, you know, 90 out of a hundred cases, uh, Cassius's upward mobility within this company would only increase, uh, his partner's devotion to him. Uh, so in a way it's, like I said, Detroit is sort of this ideal, idealized character. Like this is how it should be. Uh, it's prescriptive, not descriptive of how most people uh, are because most people are kind of uh, not plugged into that conversation. Yeah, and, and you see that a little bit in the movie where after he becomes a power caller and he's got his like new car and his new apartment, like she's still you know with him and enjoying kind of the fruits of that mm-hmm. that promotion and all that stuff. And then you know eventually they have their big falling out. But even then, Cassius starts to say like. I forget what she says, but his retort is like, oh, you didn't have any problem riding with me when we were going all over town and all, right. all that sort of stuff. Right. Um, just that, I don't know, the, the allure of making a bunch of money, um, I think, is very relatable to everyone, right? And I really like the, the sort of play on words at one point where Kasha says, you want me to quit the fattest job I've ever had? And she says something like that job is morally emaciated. Or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was, you know, considering Boots Riley had never, as far as I know, had never like written a screenplay before. It's very well, well written. It's, well it's really densely packed with, with relevant ideas. Like I said, like we talked about sort of philosophical, spiritual grounding for these uh, social critiques, but it's not, it's not some distantly impersonal thing either. You also have like interpersonal relationship dynamics and how those are impacted by your, you know, work life and, and all these things. It's, it's, it's got a lot going on and it was, uh, you know, I won't say it's like the most enjoyable movie watching experience I've ever had, but you cannot uh, say this movie's not uh, inventive and, um, thoughtful 
and it, it does all of this without being preachy, which could have been like, could have easily fallen into that. Yeah. But it, it's not like it's, it's not pulling any punches and it's telling you exactly, you know, what it thinks about the exploitation of labor or the inherent sort of whiteness of the American workplace and all that sort of stuff. But it's not doing it in a way where you're like, okay, God, I get it. It's like, right. Because it is so inventive and it gives you and fresh I, things. And part of it too is having such a, in a way, enigmatic protagonist. Like I said, like I said yeah. you don't really get like, it's hard to tell what Cassius's uh, ideology, like informing worldview is and I think that's why we are able to project ourselves onto him and and be like, man, it would be nice to have that power collar job. And, and you know, it, a squeeze and his, his followers, are they actually going to be able to implement change? If not, is Cassius doing the wrong thing still? If, if nothing's going to change, you know, uh, because you see, you know, the, the subplot of, Cassius's uncle Terry, uh, Terry Crews uh, not being able to pay his bills and then Cassius his new job sort of saves the day and that starts uncle. out as like his motivation it's like right. well it's okay that I'm doing this because I need to help my uncle right right and, and and in a way he's calling our attention to that interpersonal uh, the tension between kind of systemic issues and like family finances you know when he's saying well cassius is like trying to to like dress down terry cruz because he's a landlord and he's like cassius i'm your fucking uncle <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like you you live in my garage yeah uh which is like it, it does the movie does try to re to orient you in the right direction of like here's who you should be here's who you should be fighting right and here are the people that are just sort of symptomatic of that mm-hmm. final boss that we're, we're all trying to get after right um I think so. A.O. Scott is talking about Army Hammer as Steve lifts, and he says he plays the role uh, a little too well for his own good. <laughs> he he is a very uh, he's he's kind of perfect for that role where he's like this tall, statuesque white dude. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, in the fact that I guess Steve Lift is like a combination of Steve Jobs with Lift. Like Lift Uber, oh, yeah, sort of thing. yeah, maybe. Um, or that's what I because you know they it's kind of. Uh, what's it called? I keep wanting to call it WeWork, but that's not it. Uh, worry free. Worry free. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, WeWork, a real life thing that have, but uh, worry free is very Apple. Yeah, uh, and it's very. It's like the Uberfication of everything in your life, pretty much. Where like you're a contractor, just in general, like right. everything you do. Right. Um, but going back to like Cassius. Uh, and his point of view, uh, you know, after after we watch these movies, I'll look at a few different like YouTube film analyses to yeah. sort of see what the consensus is. And one of them made a really good point, which was if Boots Riley writes this movie and Squeeze is the protagonist, it's it becomes a pretty like one note movie that's not not nearly as interesting. I don't think it still has the same kind of you know, uh, foundational message, but it's doing it in a much more kind of like ham fisted, unoriginal sort of way, but because it's Cassius. Right. But yeah. And because it's Cassius, uh, you, we still get the sense though, that squeeze is right. Like he, he is, uh, vindicated, uh, through the, through the plot of the movie. 
and something that in uh, knowing that Boots Riley is like an out and out like avowed Marxist like anti-capitalist guy. Uh, I don't know if this is what he was meaning, but I kind of picked up on this where Squeeze and Cassius kind of meet for the first time, and and Squeeze is saying like, you know, we could use you in our movement. Like people listen to you. We need to bring everybody together, and you're a big part of that. For me, it, it kind of made me think of like international leftist movements and how uh like in you know for for instance in like 50s 60s 70s um there was a major sort of um current within the african-american sort of uh, civil rights movement which wanted to move in a more sort of leftist communist direction Mm -hmm. and have this more kind of worldwide you know unification so the fact that and maybe this is just me being stupid but the fact that squeeze is uh, played by, fuck, the guy from The Walking Dead. I, I have to look at it because I can't remember his name. Uh, Stephen Yuen Yoon. Um, and, you know, so he's we have this Asian character who's talking to this African-American character. And when you think of, like, Asian radicals, you think of, like, communist China, Vietnam, stuff like that. And the fact that he's coming to this African-American and saying, we need you within our struggle. We need we, you we to be unified. You. We can use you the same way Steve Lift is saying we can use you yeah he's still being used in a mm -hmm. way yeah and that's why like you know at the end it kind of has to come around to cassius figuring out how he can participate within the that movement in sort of a way that's kind of true to kind of his beliefs um but also sort of keeps him from being like a pawn in all of it right that's why at the end he's like he joins the union and he's like oh you know it's I'll join up and you know as long as the what does he call it he calls it like the great and powerful uh telemarketer union or whatever I forget the name oh, of the yeah, company river something regal view regal view yeah. yeah not river view regal view um it's like the you know the great and powerful regal view union will have me uh but yeah I just kind of I don't know if that's how boots rally meant that but it seemed like a kind of a shout out to like internationalist efforts of mm. like hey african americans you're you know, incredibly oppressed in a similar sort of fashion. Won't you join up with us and we can all fight together. Right. Right. One thing that we, we should talk about, cause it's, I think one of the more unsettling, it's one of the more unsettling parts in a film where there is an evil corporation making human horse hybrids. <laughs> and it's, uh, when Cassius is at Steve lifts big, you know, mansion, eyes wide shut debauchery party <laughs> yeah um and they <laughs> use a debauchery isn't the woman's name like debauchery or something yeah debauchery <laughs> and uh sal goes that looks like debauchery well it's not um but uh when they're at the uh, mansion and they they all insist that that cassius rap and i love what i love about it is how boots riley just hangs in those moments for like too long Mm -hmm. i mean it's not too long but you know what feels like too long yeah he's emphasizing it yeah so like making you sit with how uncomfortable it is yeah so so like when they uh they tell cassius to like drop his white voice and like bet you can rap and he's like no i really can't and like he even like gets it and he's like yeah it's embarrassing like how bad i am at rapping Mm -hmm. and then they all start chanting rap and he's just sitting on the floor as all this room full of like wealthy white men and like these these women that are basically like i don't know 
prostitutes but for clout or whatever and Mm -hmm. just chanting like rap 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 and that goes on for like what feels like a a solid minute the the setting there feels like a satirical you know metaphorical uh representation of american pop culture in the young rich white man's mansion surrounded by like you said what are like sort of maybe prostitutes um and and the one black guy like you said is being yelled at to to rap and when he gets up to rap uh you know he's pressured into it he starts by sincerely trying to rhyme and you hear like the one guy in the crowd like call out something for him to rhyme because he's doing so bad. <laughs> he just kind of points at him. He's like, <laughs> but then he he has a very uh, uh, convenient idea uh, of how to get out of this situation. And he just starts screaming. I won't repeat it, but he just starts screaming the N-word in, in a sort of uh, rhythm. In a, not a melody, but yeah, like a rhythm. And then the audience of rich white people uh yells it back at him and i think what riley's doing is you know giving us a pretty clear picture of what he thinks uh hip-hop culture can become or has become or pop culture in general uh from a from a sort of racial perspective you have the rich white man dictating what he does and and the the sort of rich white audience mirroring back in extremely offensive ways what he's saying um, so yeah i think that that was a particularly uncomfortable but also brilliant uh part of the film yeah and and it's especially like it just kind of keeps getting worse so at the end of it they, they repeat it a number of times and sort of like a call and response thing and the last time Cash just starts to do it and then stops. <clears throat> but then the crowd pick, keeps going and like picks it up. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, that was just one of the more you know, resting parts of it. Because it's, it's so, you know, he lingers on it and shows you that it's so fucked up and over the top. But at the same time, if you think about it for more than a second, you're like, yeah, that could happen. In re- that does happen in real life. Well, you know, it's not. I'm just thinking about the sort of arc of the of, of the movie and how wide-reaching the satire is. We've talked about like world building several times on this podcast, and it's usually with dystopias, which yeah. are their own sort of satire. But we always pick up on in those movies the sort of everyman uh, character as a sort of tour guide. I'm thinking especially of like Theo in Children of Men. He's sort of this tour guide to show us this broken world and the, the broken world is the point of the movie and, and how to fix it. And that's really what's happening in sorry to bother you. Cassius is sort of this everyman tour guide. And the point is just for him to get to these different arenas or tableaus or whatever you want to call it. Uh, so that we can see the fullness of Riley's sort of view on, on, the world we live in and so it, it it ranges all across you see pop culture critiqued in that scene 
you see uh, kind of work culture critiqued, you know, obviously in the telemarketing uh, and then the power callers and then the worry free. Um, you see the sort of relationship dynamics. So it's like all these different uh, aspects of life right now sort of expertly compressed into this narrative and you leave the film with a very uh, unique and, and in some ways bleak picture uh, of, of the world as it is right now. Uh, but also in my case, I just like really admire the artistry of, of compressing all of these things uh, into one kind of cool fun movie experience <clears throat> yeah and with those dystopias like children of men or you know some other movies what makes them so kind of can make them so uh, effective is that we have all these like echoes of our current age like within them so in children of men like it begins some of him walking into the coffee shop and it's something that feels very familiar even though it's in this you know incredibly contentious future like near future thing and sorry to bother you, it's a dystopia, but it's like a present day dystopia. Mm -hmm. It's like pointing out to us how there are all these ways in which the time in which we already live is the dystopia. Right. <laughs> and, right. And that, that I think is one of the more interesting parts of it and how, um, and this kind of goes along with that, but also goes along with this idea of the prevailing order kind of incorporating things into itself so you can never really you can never really fight it super effectively because it just absorbs things that you throw at it. And specifically thinking about toward the end when Cassius reveals to the world that they're making the, the Equisapiens and it's horrible, you know, crime against nature and all this sort of shit. And all it does is send their stock prices through the roof. And the, was it like the stock market has its biggest day in history right. and all right. this. And he can't believe it. But at the same time, it's like, no, that makes perfect sense. Like, it's just sort of showing the perversity of such a system that it's revealed, like, w without any doubt that they're doing this terrible thing of turning workers into horse people that can then work harder and not bitch as much as they say. Which, which again, shows that the, the informing uh, worldview is not one based on morality, but of productivity. Or worse, morality is defined in terms of productivity. Yeah, exactly. Efficiency or something. And that's why I think Steve Lift even says something to that effect at one point of like, no, it's okay. It's it's going to make... I'm not a monster. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to make it more... It's sort of, and and that is that is kind of the prevailing logic of the world. It's like, this is going to be more productive and make more profits. Therefore, it's neither good nor bad. It's just how it is. I, I hadn't put these two together yet, but... It, I'm just sort of realizing there is some overlap in terms of the satirical uh, elements in, in this part of the film with uh, Bong Joon-ho's Okja and the kind of genetic engineering uh, required for this uh, super pig, super pig, and and, and that's and how it's commodified by the corporation. And yeah, I don't really have anything to say other than that's kind of similar. Yeah, and it's and it, I think it's because it, it is it's a similar sort of like like you're saying genetic modification like man usurping nature mm -hmm. in but not for any sort of righteous purpose but because they want to make more money mm -hmm. and exploit people more and also the fact that you know the equisapiens aren't really people so how can they be exploited 
Um, and th- that was kind of funny of uh, Steve Lift when he's explaining it to Cassius and trying to, he's like telling Cassius, you need to watch this movie and then it'll all make sense and you won't be freaked out at all. And, and he's like explaining all the stuff about the Equisapiens and he's like, in time they'll, they'll develop their own, so- their own society, their own culture, have their own music. Like it, right. It's it just, I don't know, really perverse sort of view of it. But the way Army Hammer plays it is so great because it's so like matter of fact of like, Oh no, it's fine. Like they'll, you know, we'll, we'll yeah. they'll, they'll just be more productive and they won't have the same mental faculties and all that sort of stuff. And we were talking about, army hammers character as a combination of like sort of tech tech personalities he's also known as the winkle by or the winkle boss you know in uh, the social network so that's another connection to make there and also the lone ranger oh yeah in the movie where johnny depp was native american for some reason yeah that kind of went to what we were talking about yesterday i think of uh white people saying they're one-eighth Cherokee or whatever. Yeah. Um, very common trope among white people. Um, so thinking about, like, other things in the film that we haven't really touched on yet. I Something that's not really made made a big deal, but I caught my attention was Detroit's art show. Yeah. And not yeah. just, like, her performance, but how she's speaking in a British accent. It made me think, like, is that similar to what are they trying to say that like in the art world it's the same thing except it's a different sort of what people expect and are comforted by within that context is different than telemarketing yeah that's a good point um and cassius sort of critiques her at one point saying what difference do you think you're making selling art to rich people like your your market is is uh is uh, disconnected from the realm that you need to influence uh, or that is possible to influence. Like, who are you serving? Um, But yeah, that's, I guess that's not really fully fleshed out after that, though. Yeah, and she's talking to somebody at one point, I don't know if this is true, but it looked like, I forget his first name, but Bet. Batman Jolly or Batman G or whatever from Vampire Weekend. It looked mm-hmm. like him. I don't know if it was. I, he's kind of like in the background, so maybe I was just seeing things. Um, but that would be an interesting cameo. Yeah. <laughs> just like, oh, Isn't hey. is that the guy? That, that's the last name of the guy that made uh, the OA? Yeah, he, it, that's his brother. Oh, okay. They kind of both ended up being culturally relevant, which yeah. I feel like doesn't happen very often. Yeah. It also happened with like, Harry Kondabalu and his brother, who's Dapwell and Das Racist, mm. um, which is uh, it's, it's interesting when stuff like that happens. Um, but yeah, that art show is just uh, that's just an interesting part, and she has her performance where people are throwing cell phones, balloons full of sheep's blood, and what's the other thing they're throwing at her? Something smaller. Can't remember. Uh, I forget what it is, but they're throwing like handfuls of it at her. Um, and it, she sort of has this, you know, Cash just stops everyone from throwing stuff at her. And she's like, I'm just sticking to the script. It's the same thing you do. Uh, which is, that part of, I guess, is true. But at the same time, it's like, I feel like it was a weird mix between showing Cassius how this is like his job. Or this is like what he, how his existence is. But also 
she is just kind of exploiting herself mm-hmm. in order to make people sort of buy her art or to right. succeed. Right, because he says, how could you possibly subject yourself to this? Yeah. Yeah, so that that is definitely problematized, her, her orientation to art. Yeah, add, add art to the list of, of uh, aspects of contemporary life satirized. <laughs> yeah, that, that gets co-opted and you know, bastardized and all that. Um, and it, I don't know, Detroit's an interesting character. They, my parents named me Detroit because they wanted me to have an American name, even though that's like a French <laughs> name. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just thought that was that was clever. Um yeah, is there anything we haven't mentioned? I mean, there's the, the, I keep forgetting what it's called, worry-free, that whole yeah. aspect. We've already yeah, touched yeah. on it a little bit, sure. but like the NTV, it's it's like a, the Cribs ripoff. Oh, I forget yeah, what it's yeah. called. I can't even remember. Um, where you have the guy and the, it, and it's so funny that we're the, the, the don't worry, or the worry-free, I'm never going to get that right, the worry-free, I guess housing or whatever is you would look at it it's literally a prison but with like a chandelier yeah yeah and they all they all look like uh they're all dressed like minions yep just pretty pretty appropriate yep yeah that's definitely intentional i don't uh i think we've touched on most of it anyway great i mean very very worth watching, I'll say. Yeah, and I, I hope he keeps making movies because I feel like he's got a fresh kind of very entertaining and unique voice, but he's also saying things that like need to be said that you don't get and in he, most movies. Given his major theme of commodification, I strongly suspect that Boots Riley is not an artist that will be commodified and co-opted. I've heard some people um, say, like, or they're talking about all the love that Parasite got and saying, well, you know, Parasite's just doing what Sorry to Bother You did. But, and, you know, for in some ways that's true, but the movies are different enough. Um, just in, like in a different totally in the, the context pacing, of the films. Yeah. Um, and I, the thing is, like, why do we have to pit them against each other? Why can't we just have them both, like, in the arsenal? Yeah. Um, yeah. Because they're. I think they're both saying things that are important that people need to, to look at and think about. And that's why, you know, the, the title of the film, sorry to bother you. It's like a, a reference to the telemarketers, but it's also, you know, and sorry to, to bring this to your attention, disrupt your life as it is. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why that, that sort of like weird scene before the credits after Cassius is turned into a, an equisapien <laughs> and they're at uh, Steve lifts door, yeah. like in his camera. Um, it's one of those where it's like, oh, finally, it's coming home to roost. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, if only Jeff Bezos made hybrid humans, maybe they could rise up and beat his ass or something. <laughs> um, yeah, but okay. Um, next week we're gonna be uh, looking at something way different. Um, and it's a movie that's like, I, I'm interested to, to rewatch it because I haven't seen it in a very long time. But uh, Twister. From 1996, directed by Jan de Bont. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, Helen Hunt, Bill Paxton. Uh, R.I.P. R.I.P. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, R.I.P. R.I.P. And other people. Um, so yeah, a movie that was a big deal in the late 90s. I remember 
being yeah. I remember it being a big deal. So we'll look at it and what it has to say about. I think it'll be it'll have a lot to say, or we will have a lot to say about its opinion of man's relationship to to nature and and catastrophe. catastrophe. And, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, being in awe of nature, that sort of stuff. So yeah, sure. Good shit. All right. Next week. <laughs>